The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. If you were to pick up a modern introduction to the Old Testament, you would very likely find that it maintained that in the book of Genesis there were two accounts of creation. I'm reminded of a book that appeared some years ago with the title The The Bible as Word of God. And in this book it claimed that the Bible was the Word of God, but also the Bible was the Word of Man, And one reason for saying that it was the word of man was that there were errors in the Bible. And as soon as someone begins to list the errors in the Bible, you know pretty well what he's going to say. And one of the first errors in the Bible was that there were two accounts of creation, one found in the first chapter, the other found in the second chapter, and these two accounts were at variance one with another. They didn't agree. There were error. There was an error there. And so this is a rather widespread view. I don't know when it first came into prominence. I don't know who the first person was to propagate this view, but it's very widely held today that at the very beginning of the Bible we have a gross error, two different accounts of creation. Now this is based upon the assumption that the Pentateuch consists of a number of documents, is composed of a number of documents, and that one of these documents is the so-called priestly document, P, and the other is the Jehovah document, J, which has been combined with the Elohistic document, E, so you have J-E. The first chapter of Genesis is said to be the priestly document, P, and the second chapter belongs to J.E. They represent two entirely different backgrounds and two entirely different viewpoints, we are told, and so there you have it, a, an error, a contradiction, really, at the very beginning of the Bible. <coughs> now, it seems to me, just by way of introduction, that this creates somewhat of a psychological difficulty. If the documentary analysis is correct, that is, that the Pentateuch does consist of a number of documents which were finally pieced together by a redactor, if that is true, then I think you have to acknowledge that the Pentateuch is a very remarkable work. Uh, It isn't everybody that can dash off a Pentateuch every day. It isn't the kind of writing that very many people can produce. I think we have to agree that it is one of the greatest writings in existence and that whoever was responsible for it was an artist and a genius. So if this redactor was responsible for the Pentateuch in its present form, whoever this redactor was, he was a very unusual person. Now, I think we have to agree with that. And if that is true, then why did he make such a blunder at the very beginning as to put together two contradictory accounts of creation? If he was such a genius, wouldn't he have realized that it wasn't very smart to put two conflicting accounts of creation together at the very beginning of his work? And he seems to have gotten by with this pretty well until the rise of modern scholarship. No one ever seems to have noticed that here were two conflicting accounts of creation. So there is the psychological problem that I think should at least be considered by some of those who so glibly tell us that we have two diverse accounts of creation. But now let's look at it a little more carefully and ask, are there really two contradictory accounts of creation? That would be a very strange way to write a book. You know, today, when you write a book, there are some men, book reviewers, who just seem to wait to find some kind of an error. 
and if they can find it, they pounce on it and they're happy. They may ignore everything else in your book, but if there is anything that seems to be a little out of question, they pounce on that. And that's all right. It keeps us on our toes. But why, why would the Bible begin with such a gross error as this? To me, that's a little difficult to take. And I think that the critics who have created this redactor have created a problem far greater than any problem that the Bible itself offers. So let me ask again, is there really a contradiction right at the beginning of the Bible? Well, I don't think so. I think all we have to do is to read what the Bible says. And I will probably repeat this statement several times because it's something that I think needs to be gotten across, and that is this. When somebody tells you that there is an error in the Bible or that there is a mistake in the Bible, go to the Bible and see exactly what the Bible says. Don't begin discussing it without reference to the Bible. And when you see exactly what the Bible says, very often just the reading of the Bible causes that error to disappear. And so let's look at what the second chapter of Genesis says. Now we noticed yesterday that the first chapter is chronological, that it speaks of the creation of all things and of God's forming the present universe so that man could dwell upon it of God's pronouncing everything that he had made very good, and then in the early verses of the second chapter, God rests, that is, he ceases from his labor. Now there is just a minor point to notice in the early verses of chapter 2. We read in the Hebrew and in the English that God rested on the seventh day, or God finished on the seventh day his work which he had made. If you were to examine the Greek translation, which is known as the Septuagint, especially Codex B, you would find that it reads, And God finished on the sixth day his work which he had made. The Greek substitutes sixth for seventh. Now, why is that? I'm inclined to think that the Greek translators felt that if you... Uh, rendered it, God finished his work on the seventh day, that that would imply that God had worked for a while on the seventh day and then ceased his work. If I say, for example, I finished painting the house today, that means that I did some painting today and I ceased today. And so the Greeks evidently reasoned, if God finished his work on the seventh day, that means that he worked for a while on the seventh day and then ceased. But here there is no need to make the emendation that the Greeks make. We can simply let the Hebrew text stand as it is. And for those of you who know Hebrew, and I know there are several of you that do, I would simply say that the form of the verb that is used here, the P-A-L stem, is often declarative. And what it means is, and God on the seventh day declared, finished the work which he had made. It doesn't say anything about his working on the sixth day. And if the Greek translators had known Hebrew, they wouldn't have made this mistake that they did. Forgive me if I put in a little plug for Hebrew every opportunity that I can. There are few enough of us that are doing it, so I'm going to take every opportunity to do that. I would say then, if the Greek translators had known their Hebrew, they never would have made this mistake. The Hebrew simply means, and God declared finished on the seventh day his work which he had done. It's a very common use of that particular stem. In Hebrew and in Arabic, you get it in the Koran where Muhammad is always saying he declared somebody to be a liar. Seems to be one of his favorite expressions, but it's used a great deal, that particular stem, and used in the Bible also. Now then we come in verse 4 to the statement, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And this is a key statement for understanding the book of Genesis. It is a statement that is misunderstood, I guess, as much as anything in the Bible. For some people seem to have the ability, like Humpty Dumpty and Alice in Wonderland, who said that he could make words mean whatever he wanted them to mean, some critics seem to have the ability of making phrases mean whatever they want them to mean. Now this phrase, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth is, I say, a key phrase for understanding the book of Genesis. 
This phrase is a superscription and not a subscription. And what I mean by that is this phrase does not bring to a close what has just preceded. It is not a subscription written after what has just gone before. It is rather an introduction to what follows. It is a superscription. Now, how do I know that? The phrase occurs some 10 or 11 times in the book of Genesis. And if you will examine the phrase, you will notice in every one of these occurrences that that is the way in which the phrase is used. It is always used as a superscription. In fact, August Dillman, followed by Moffat in his translation, realized that that was the case. But they said that the phrase is out of place where it stands. It should have been back before the first verse of Genesis. And that is why Moffat gets the translation that he does. Uh, this is the story of how the heavens and the earth were formed when God began to create the heavens and the earth and so on. That is the explanation for the translation that you will find in the Moffat Bible. And that is a recognition of the fact that this phrase, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, is a superscription and not a subscription. <coughs> now, there are those who simply will not face up to that fact. And so in the Anchor Bible, which has re recently appeared, you have this phrase translated something like, this is the story of the how the heavens and earth were formed, summing up what has gone before. Now, that is not a correct translation. And that anchor Bible on Genesis, in a number of instances, it seems to me, is inaccurate in its translation. I cannot understand how it has been praised as widely as it has. It seems to me that uh, the, there is too much reading into the text very often. And this is an instance of reading into the text. Now, the phrase does not mean the story of how the heavens and the earth were formed. Let's look at it very briefly. These are the generations. The Hebrew word toledot comes from a root which means to bear or to beget. And it is a noun based on the causative stem of that root. It means literally, these are the things begotten of heaven and earth. Or you might say, these are the things produced by heaven and earth. Now there has just appeared a Dutch book on this subject, and in English the title would be Creation and Paradise, written by Professor Gispen, G-I-S-P-E-N, of the Free University of Amsterdam. A very thorough, detailed analysis of the Hebrew text of the first three chapters of Genesis. And I'm very happy to notice that he comes out solidly on this point and shows that it must be taken as a superscription and that the word means not the story but the things produced. So what this superscription is telling us is these are the things produced of heaven and earth. Now, notice the implications of that phrase. The minute you read that, you realize that we are not now going to deal with an account of creation. We have already dealt with creation. In fact, there are two basic divisions to the book of Genesis. The first division is the creation and it runs from chapter 1, verse 1, down through chapter 2, verse 3. It's a short division. The second division may be called the genealogies, the Toledoth, and that runs from chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of the entire book, chapter 50, verse 26. Those are the two basic divisions of the book of Genesis. And so this phrase, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, tells us that we are not going to read about creation. We are going now to read about something that came from heaven and earth, and in particular man, whose body comes from the created universe, from the earth. Some say that the word heaven uh, spiritually suggests that the soul of man is immaterial 
and from the heavens. I don't know whether we can say that or not. Certainly it's a disputed point. But what is important, you see, is that we have here a statement to the effect that these things, that is, the things to follow, are that which was produced or begotten by or generated by, if you will, the heavens and the earth. Now notice how that does tie up with the first, verse, first chapter of Genesis. The first verse of Genesis says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. <clears throat> there is the origin of the heavens and the earth. God has created them. But now we are going a step further. Now we are no longer dealing with creation. Now we are dealing with what heavens and earth, which God has created, what heavens and earth have themselves produced, what has come from heavens and earth. Now, I think we can be thoroughly dogmatic about that. There are some things about which we can be dogmatic, and when we can be dogmatic, let's enjoy it to the full. And so right here I'm saying, let's be dogmatic, we can do it. That is what this phrase means. Uh, we don't have to be ashamed or apologize about it. We know that that is the meaning of the phrase, and we can say that with full conviction. So that the Bible itself tells us what it is going to talk about, the Bible does not say, here is a second account of creation, not at all. The Bible tells us that now we are going to talk about what has come from heaven and earth. So Genesis 2 is not a second account of creation. Now, I don't know how to get that idea across. I can't seem to get any higher critic to realize that, and nobody else seems to be able to do it either. They repeat dogmatically that this phrase is a subscription. And is it asking too much to ask for a little evidence for that? Even the standard Hebrew dictionary is an error at this point in its translation and re reference to this word. You can see in the very nature of the case that that is not the meaning of the phrase. Take, for example, another illustration. These are the generations of Tyre. What follows? Do you have an account of the birth of Tira and the life of Tira? No, you don't have that at all. That has already been given in the preceding section. What you have is an account of that which was begotten by Tira, namely Abraham. And the whole section deals with Tira's descendant, Abraham. Take every one of these phrases in Genesis and you'll see that that's the case. And my friends, you might find it interesting if you have a study Bible to take a red crayon and underline this phrase every time it occurs in Genesis. If you do, you'll make a very interesting discovery, and that is this. You will notice that this phrase serves to narrow down the line of promise. It begins with the, most, with the broadest possible beginning, the creation of the heavens and the earth. Then it narrows it down to what comes from heaven and earth, then the next one, this is the book of the generations of Adam. It now longer, no longer is talking about animals and so on, but only of the descendants of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of Shem, the generations of Terah, and so on. Now twice it interrupts the line of descent to speak of other lines that are not in the line of promise. And then it reverts to its main theme, which is to try to trace the line of descent from the very beginning down to the point where Joseph goes into Egypt. So the whole book of Genesis has a narrowing down effect. It is, begins with what is the widest possible conception and step by step narrows that down for our interest, you see, is to read about the chosen line, how in the face of all kinds of obstacles, God is fulfilling his promise that he made to the fathers. <clears throat> now, when you do that, you realize that this phrase, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, must be a superscription, that it must introduce what follows, and it is entirely incorrect to say that it is a subscription. Uh, we look at the phrase then, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, and to analyze it a bit more carefully, the word these, Ela, points to what is to follow. 
generations indicates what is characteristic of the book of Genesis. And the word Genesis, of course, comes from the Greek translation of this phrase, which happens to be in the genitive case, genesios. It's translated beginning. The Greek word is beginning. The characteristic of the book of Genesis is to mention the generations in the line of promise. Now then, beginning with chapter 2, we are no longer concerned about the creation. That is one thing we need to get clearly in mind. And when we get that clearly in mind, we realize that all these attempts to show that there are contradictions with the first chapter fall by the board. Is it asking too much to let the Bible speak for itself? I do not think it is fair to insist that the second chapter of Genesis is a creation account, then to reason that this phrase, these are the generations, must be a subscription, and then to say there are contradictions between this chapter and the first chapter. I don't think that is right. You know, I sometimes feel there is a great deal of similarity between certain higher critical procedures and politics. You know that politicians use slogans. And you keep saying something over enough, and enough, enough times and people believe it. And it's the same thing here. Just keep saying this over often enough that there are two contradictory accounts in the Bible and let it go at that without investigating it any further, and people believe that. And they keep saying it over and over and over again. Because if you didn't say this, you would take away one of the strongest support for the documentary hypothesis. And nobody wants to do that, except people like myself. And so there you are. But the facts don't support it. Now let's look at what follows. We are not going to deal with an account of creation in this second chapter. We are dealing with something else. We are dealing with what comes from heaven and earth. And it soon becomes very obvious that we are dealing with the creation of man. The second chapter of Genesis is particularistic. It deals with man and with the placing of man in the Garden of Eden. And it is a preparation for the events of the third chapter. On the other hand, I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want to say for a minute that there is no relationship with the first chapter. There is. The first chapter is presupposed, and that is shown by the divine names, among other things. The Elohim, God of the first chapter, appears in the second chapter as Jehovah Elohim to show that Jehovah is the Elohim of the first chapter. A number of things in the second chapter presuppose what has been stated in the first chapter. And surely the first chapter prepares for what follows with its constant emphasis upon God saw that it was good so that the contrast stands out between the original creation and what transpires later on when sin enters the world. We begin then this second chapter with the statement that, which is translated in a rather strange way in the King James Version, but which simply tells us that there was no herb of the field and no bush had yet sprouted because, and then two reasons are given. The Lord God had not caused it to rain and there was no man to till the ground. Now that's a very strange statement, is it not? Does this refer to a condition applying to the whole earth? Personally, I doubt that very much. After all, you can have things grow without rain, and you can certainly have them grow without a man being on hand. The weeds in our garden do pretty well without my being around there. Certain things will grow, will they not, without the presence of man? We know that. So the very language seems to suggest something special. This is a contrast, I think, with the Garden of Eden, which God is ab about to form. And I think its purpose is to show that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but God did not place man in a barren wilderness, but placed him in the best that this earth had. He created for him a garden. 
And this contrast shows what would be without that garden. It prepares us for a better understanding of the Garden of Eden itself. And that, I think, is the purpose there. Now, you might expect that the text would go on and say that God caused it to rain and God formed man right away. And yet it doesn't do that. It uses a strange word, a, which I'll pronounce in the Hebrew. I'm not going to use the English word mist. Ave is the word that occurs there in the Hebrew. And ave used to go up from the ground and watered all the faces of the ground. And the term adamah that is used there usually has a restrictive sense, not always. Now what is this ave that went up from the earth and watered the faces of the ground? It is not a mist. The word is apparently related to a Sumerian word, Sumerian word id. Now that hasn't anything to do with psychology, but it seems to refer to subterranean water. And what we have here is either the breaking forth of water in some way from under the ground or possibly a river overflowing its banks. I don't think we can be dogmatic here. So that this section of ground, the Adama, was watered and plants could grow. The first condition then, the watering of the ground, is fulfilled by God. And the second condition is immediately fulfilled by God. God formed man, literally, dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that is, the breath that brings life, and man became a soul of life, a living soul. Now, the commentators love to use the word anthropomorphic when they're dealing with this second chapter of Genesis. And they say, here is God as a potter. He comes down just as a child takes modeling clay, so God takes the dust of the ground or the mud or something and he molds it into the body of a man. I think that uh, we can very easily let our imaginations run away with us here. Do we have to say all of that? Is that what the text says? What the text is telling us is that the form of man's body was made by God. Now how else can you say it than just this way? Man's body has a particular form. And that form was given to it by God. God formed man. Do we have to assume that he came down and picked up actual dust in physical fingers and modeled it as a child models modeling clay? I don't think we have to do that. How else would you express this in the English language or the Hebrew language or any language? How else would you say that God gave to man's body a form? other than to say that he formed it. And he formed it using dust taken from the ground. Now that's all the Bible says. And I can't help but feel that some commentators let their imaginations run wild at this point. They make this a very naive conception. But is it so naive? How else would you state this? The body of man then is shown to come from the dust of the ground. And that statement prepares us for the statement in the third chapter of Genesis that that body will return to the dust. But the body is not all. The forming shows that God formed that body immediately. And this rules out the idea that the body of man developed from the body of some being lower than man for God formed it dust from the ground right there and then. But the body is not all. The forming shows that God formed that body immediately. And this rules out the idea that the body of man developed from the body of some being lower than man, for God formed it dust from the ground right there and then. And, but that is not all. The mere body is no longer the being. We know that when death comes, we see the body before us. But that is not the person. There is more than that. There is the divine inbreathing. 
and it is the divine inbreathing which constitutes man as a living soul, a soul of life. God breathed into his nostrils. And again, how else could we express the truth than this way? Do we have to assume that it was a sort of an artificial respiration process? I don't think so. We don't know how God breathed. That is an anthropomorphic expression, surely. But you see, we cannot speak about God without using anthropomorphic expressions. If you are going to use that term, and frankly, I don't care for it too much, it says in the form of man, I would rather change it around and say theomorphic and say that we are in the image of God and what we do is after the pattern that God has set. And yet I realize the difficulties in that. But if you're going to use the term anthropomorphic for expressions like this, every time you speak of God, you're using an anthropomorphic expression. The first chapter of Genesis is filled with them. God saw, God saw, said, God called, God divided, and so on. All of those are anthropomorphic expressions. That is simply what the finite mind has to say about the infinite God. And yet Driver in his commentary makes much about the anthropomorphism, so-called, in this second chapter of Genesis, and so do a number of others. But how else would you uh, state this beautiful truth <coughs> in language that would be clearly understood? And so man as body and soul comes from the hands of the Creator. That is man. And it is man with a divine inbreathing who is to face the temptation that is mentioned to be mentioned in the third chapter. The man is prepared, you see. Now the two conditions are there that there may be a garden that man may take care of. And then right away we read that God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Now something appears right here that I think compels us to ask about the general interpretation of this second chapter. I have been very insistent that the first chapter is to be understood chronologically. That is seen by the order of development, the progression of thought. It is seen also by the chronological emphasis, day one, day two, and so on. You do not have that in the second chapter of Genesis. I think that in the second chapter of Genesis, instead of giving a chronological order of statement, the Lord is stating matters in step by step to prepare for the account of the temptation. They are not necessarily given in chronological order. Now, you'll see that that is the case if you look at Genesis. That is the second chapter. If you take it chronologically, man is created. Then the garden is planted. Then the man is placed in the garden. Then the trees of the garden grow. Well, can you have that garden without the trees? Then there is a description of the rivers of the garden. Then man is placed in the garden again. Now, that is what you come up with if you insist on interpreting this chronologically. Do you think that is what is meant? God creates man. What does he do with the man? Does he put him on a rock somewhere out in the desert and then form the garden and then put man in the garden? And then the garden isn't really formed because now the trees grow from the garden and then God puts man in the garden a second time. You see, that is what you come up with if you insist on taking this chapter chronologically. And I don't believe it was intended to be taken chronologically. Now, as to this question of order of events in the Bible, we simply have to go by what the Bible itself teaches. There are certain passages in the New Testament and the Gospels which are not to be understood in chronological order. That, by the way, is a manner of writing that comes to us from ancient times. But when the chapter demands chronological order, then we must give it, as I think the first chapter does. When it precludes chronological order, as I think this chapter does, then we must ask what its purpose is. And I think the purpose here is that of emphasis. And if we would just remember this, we would see that there is no contradiction between this chapter and the first chapter of Genesis. The emphatic thing is the creation of man with his constituent elements that he may face the temptation. 
That is first taken care of. Man is created. Now the emphasis falls upon the garden. But this is not a complete statement of the garden. And the Lord God created a garden eastward in Eden. And I believe that would have us understand that the garden and Eden are not coextensive. Now the word Eden in Hebrew may mean a delight or a pleasure. I'm not sure that's what it means here. There is a Sumerian word, Eddinu, which means a step. That is an S-T-E-P-P-E, that kind of a step. And it would be a plain, a wide plain. And in the eastern part of this plain, God planted the garden. I think that is what it means, but there again we can't be dogmatic. So the garden is planted. Now, there is a lesson in that which is important. And that is that God did not just put man anywhere on the face of the globe. The theological teaching of the scripture here is of supreme importance. I don't think we can overemphasize it. That is that God is the creator of this world, that man is the crown of his creation, that God places man in the garden. He gives to man the very best that this earth has. And man is to rule in this garden for the glory of God. Now, your evolutionary theory simply rules all of that sort of thing out. According to the evolutionary theory, man may have appeared anywhere upon this earth. It doesn't matter where. And in the most primitive of conditions. Man is not the crown of creation, according to the evolutionary theory. He is more or less of an accident who happens to be right here. I want us to think through what is involved in the philosophy of evolution. For this philosophy is with us today. And if this philosophy is true, it simply means that there is no law, there is no authority, that you and I can act any way that we want to. We are a law unto ourselves. You cannot have Christianity and have an evolutionary philosophy at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. But notice the beauty of what is given to us here in Genesis. Man is no accident. It is not a chance, by chance, that he comes here. And God just doesn't put him somewhere in a cave, as the evolutionary theory would probably suppose. No, in the garden, a specially prepared garden for man. And in this all we see the love of God for his creatures. And that fact is very important. But now we notice the garden again. Now God tells us something else about that garden. He planted trees in that garden. And there, these trees would mean a great deal to those who live in the Near East. Now you and I are accustomed to greenness and verdure but in the near east about the first thing you learn is that you have to wear sunglasses trees and greenness are more or less of a rarity and even the drab olive tree is hardly what you would call green but where you find an oasis in the desert and i've seen them in the sinai desert the water and the greenness and the little bit of grass that is there is most welcome and most refreshing we don't realize what a blessing water is until you've been in a desert region. And so God planted trees in the garden. That is, it is the most delightful of places. It is the garden of God. And furthermore, these trees are for man. They are good for food and a delight to the eyes, pleasant to the eyes. So God is abundantly gracious to man. But then we are told that there are two trees in particular, the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of the good, of, uh, good and evil. And so, you see, step by step, we are being prepared for the events to be related in the following chapter. These two trees are simply mentioned. And I think there are two trees. There are some who would translate it this way, the tree of life in the midst of the garden, even the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a possible translation, and then they get just one tree. Now, they get just one tree, but I think the sequel shows very clearly that two trees were intended. 
so that that is not the correct translation or rendering right there. But these trees prepare us, you see, for what is to follow in the next chapter. Now there is introduced a parenthesis, and this parenthesis speaks of the watering of the garden, the four rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates we are able to identify. I understand, though I've never been there, but I understand that the springs that give rise to the source of the Tigris and the Euphrates are today just several hundred yards apart, which would seem to show the closeness of these two rivers in their place of origin. As to the other two rivers, I simply do not know what they are, and there's not much point in trying to identify them. Uh, Dalich wrote his book, Bolog Paradis, Where Was Paradise? Literally, Where Did Paradise Lie? And uh, discussed the various theories as to the location of the Garden of Eden. You and I can't find it today. Even if we were there, we wouldn't know that we are there, for the place has changed, and there's not much point in trying to find it. There is a better way into the true Garden of Eden for us now, and that is through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And it's more important that we be concerned to find that Eden than to find the original Eden. We certainly wouldn't find the original Eden, even if we happened to be on the very spot itself. But you can see that uh, the place was well watered. It was a place of great delight. Uh, and God, the abundant goodness of God is seen in the preparation of this garden for man. And then after all of that, we are told that the Lord God put the man in the Garden of Eden. And he put him there for a specific purpose, to dress it and to keep it. Now what the word to keep it means, uh, I really don't know. We have to think about paradise from our fallen standpoint. And when you and I keep a garden, why, we keep it from weeds. We keep it from animals coming in and trampling it down and so on. Would that sort of thing have happened back in Eden? I don't think we can answer those questions. I don't think we know. It, the verbs simply show that man had a responsibility. God has created us so that we have a responsibility. That work is for the glory of God. We are not to be ashamed of work. Work is really a blessing. God has so made us that we have to work. We have to do our task. And Adam was given a task in the garden. Now all of that, you see, is in preparation for what follows. But now something else has to be emphasized, and that is that man is not to be alone. Not good, says God, the being of the man to his separation. I'm translating literally. I will make for him a help that is meet for him. An azer konegdo, and a help that corresponds to him. A man is not to be alone. He needs a help, and he needs a help that corresponds to him. And I would say that in this brief phrase, the dignity of woman is expressed as beautifully and as accurately as you can find it anywhere. Man needs a help, and to show that he needs the help that corresponds to him, the animals are brought before him. Now we're simply told that God created the animals, and they are brought before Adam that Adam might name the animals. Right here, you see, there are a lot of people who think that we're dealing with a very naive, impossible conception. What do you mean by this naming the animals? When I first studied Hebrew in Stanford University, we had a minister who came down each week to teach Hebrew, and for oh, most of the time I was the only one in the class. And when he found out that I was conservative, he did everything that he could to try to overthrow my... Uh, beliefs, and I'll never forget how he talked about this passage. Now he says, here's the big parade. God puts Adam out on a rock somewhere, and all the animals parade in front of him, and, animals, and Adam says, there goes a lion, there goes a tiger, and there goes an elephant, and so on. Now he said, do you really believe that? He tried to make it look as ridiculous as possible. And Mark Twain, you know, has something on Adam's diary in which he does the same thing. Adam comes home one night and Eve says, what did you call that big animal out there? Well, he said, I called it an elephant. Well, why did you call it an elephant? Well, he said, it looked like an elephant. <laughs> and, uh, <coughs> it's all very easy to make fun of the scripture at this point, but let's just stop for a minute and see what the scripture is telling us here. By the way, if evolution is true and man evolved from non-man, that man had to name the animals. 
It had to be done. It's been done. So before you ridicule the scripture, just realize that other proposed solutions don't really get away from the difficulty. If a man evolved, if something evolved into a man, he had to name those animals too. Now what does it mean to name the animals? This idea that Adam just sat there on a rock and said there's a lion and there's a tiger and so on, that's not exactly what the scripture says. By naming the animals, Adam expressed the true nature of these animals. Now, it may very well be that he pronounced some sound, and it may have been onomatopoeic in nature. That could very well be. But look, this shows the essential difference between man and the animals. Man named the animals. That is, he had the capacity to understand these animals, what they were, what their functions were, why they existed, how they could serve him and so on. Adam acted as a creature created in the image of God. He could name the animals. They could not name him. And this shows the profound difference between man and the lower animals. And it prepares us also for Genesis 3.1 where a serpent speaks and we realize that things are out of order. And now, how did Adam do this? Well, I think simply in the way that Genesis says, God brought him into contact with these animals. It doesn't mean that they all paraded before him, but why may not it have been in the ordinary course of his life he came into contact with these animals and he recognized what they were. He could classify them and categorize them and know them. Now, I don't see anything ridiculous in that. It's been done. Somebody has done it. What is there ridiculous or naive in that conception? But Genesis simply shows that although Adam understood these animals, he named them names, he knew what they were for, he knew how they might serve him and be a help to him. Nevertheless, among them all, there was not found a help that corresponded to him. The only help that corresponded to man was the woman. And her creation is related as a special creation. Now, there's a very profound truth, I think, expressed here. And I have found that it's a practical thing, and I'm urging the students at seminary to do this when they get out into the ministry. When a young couple comes before them and wants to be married, this is a very fine passage to, de to deal with. The woman is called a help to the man. And she is a help that is according to before him, stands before him, is corresponding to him, you might say, as none of the animals were. And so there is a divinely imposed subordination here that the woman is to be a help to the man. And she realizes her highest destiny when she is a help to the man. Now, we jokingly talk very often about who's boss in the family. We shouldn't do that. What we should aim for is the scriptural ideal. For what is stated here is exactly the same thing that the New Testament teaches. The man must be the head in the sense that Christ is the head of the church. That does not be, mean a boss. Now, sin has perverted this so that throughout the history of the world, womankind has often been degraded into a position of virtual slavery. And that is wrong. And that exists in too many places even today. Or the very opposite occurs. She takes the lead and she becomes the boss, as it were, and that doesn't really satisfy her, and it doesn't satisfy the man. Now, on this earth, there will never be the proper scriptural proportions in any marriage, of course. Sin has done its share to try to destroy that. But where young people can see, before they are married, what the divine ideal is, I think it will go a long way. 
towards avoiding unhappiness in that marriage. The man is to be the head of the house in this sense that he is to know what he's going to do. That before the Lord he must have certain things he wants to do and must do them. The wife is to be his help in the accomplishment of that aim. And she is happiest when she plays that role of help. That's the way that God created her. And that is the way she should be. This does not mean that the husband is to be a tyrant as some husbands are or that he is to lord it over the wife or to be a boss. Not at all. We've seen that in marriages and it brings tragedy and unhappiness when it occurs. Nor is the wife to do that, to dominate and so tyrannize over the husband that he doesn't dare open his mouth. And when a man lets that happen, it doesn't speak very well for him. But if young people, before they are married, could realize what the divine ideal is, I think it would go a long way towards avoiding unhappiness. If the man knows what he wants to do and loves his wife, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, and if she is willing to be the help that corresponds to him, and they try to attain that ideal, and that involves sacrifices on the part of both, of course, if they try for that, then they come as near to having a happy marriage, I think, as can be had upon this earth. The scripture utters a very profound truth here. The woman is to be the help to the man. But this is also a preparation for Genesis 3 because it was the woman through whom Satan entered and caused the downfall of the man. And thus the woman is created being of the same nature essential with the man as the animals are not. And here again this profound distinction between mankind and the animals is set forth in Genesis. No room for evolution here. And finally, the chapter concludes with the statement that they were naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So step by step, this second chapter of Genesis has prepared the way for the account of the temptation that is to be given in the third chapter. See how remarkable its message is and how we really deform it when we say that it is only another account of creation. It is not that. It has its own message, and an extremely important message at that. Thank you, Oliver.